So welcome everyone once again to the Idea Market podcast. I'm joined by Michael Ice, CEO of Idea Market, and we are joined by Bill Ottman, CEO and co-founder of Minds.com. Uh, for those of you that don't know what Minds.com is, it is a social media alternative for those people who don't want to be deplatformed, don't want to be silenced, and it's pretty casual about this in comparison to other platforms, I'd say. Um, so instead of sort of the usual question of just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself, we have a question for you, Bill, which is if you were to develop a boot camp course and the re- the whole point of the boot camp is for those who take it to basically become clones of yourself, what would that boot camp look like? All right. Hey, guys. Um, okay, let's uh, design a curriculum on the spot. I would say, well, for crypto, uh, there's my, my favorite explainer uh, resource is uh, Finematics, which I recommend to everybody. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He does these amazing tutorials on DeFi and and crypto. But, you know, the for what I'm knowledgeable about it's really just like the philosophy of of open source and why that is so essential to the future of all networks and all applications all protocols really if it's not open source it's it's not an alternative um and there's just these core principles transparency privacy uh user ownership that we try to think about when we're building anything. And so, you know, you mentioned the free speech stuff in the beginning. I think that that's like a component of it, but it's really sort of just, it's it, it's an important foundational component of what we care about, but it's not the totality of what we care about. Um, these, you know, it's really just about digital rights, internet freedom, in general, and you know, if you search any of these terms, you'll you'll start to go down the rabbit hole of of why encryption matters, why um, you know how kind of cryptography evolved from uh, you know communications to cryptocurrency, and um, yeah, so it's kind of go down the list. But it, it's really all about internet freedom to me, and um, there's a lot to learn and unpack there. So I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> Yeah. Well, go ahead, James. I was going to say, do you you think it's sort of ironic that you had to say internet freedom? Do you sort of, I mean, I think many of us probably understand the internet was meant to be complete freedom, right? And and we almost had that for a while early on in the early days. The fact there's a whole idea of freedom on the internet is a, is a bit of a punch to the the gut, right? You know, I, yeah, people say that a lot that like web one was decentralized. And I think that there definitely were parts of it that were, you know, more people were like running an email server and whatnot. But, you know, when I was using web one, you know, I don't think that like ask Jeeves and like Netscape and angel fire, you know, all of these kind of old school sites were, you know, they weren't, they didn't care about freedom really. They did, or they didn't talk about it. They, you know, there were definitely like cypherpunk forums where people were talking about this kind of stuff, but like AOL and, you know, that, that was pretty corporate. So, you know, I, I, I think that, 
we we have kind of gone full circle, but there's the, the there it is an an entirely new thing I think with Web three. Would you say that Web one didn't talk so much about freedom because it was kind of the default, like a sort of Garden of Eden before the descent into the possibility of unfreedom? To be honest, I haven't really researched it enough. I know that you know the very idea of free and open source software is relatively new. Like if you listen to any of Richard Stallman's talks or, um, you know, other kind of software freedom advocates, you know, originally software just was free. You know, people, this, this whole idea of software patents, like wasn't even considered. And then windows came in and, and Mac and, and Apple, and they, they started, you know, keeping see, see, keeping source code secret, even though the, a lot of the times they were building on top of open source and exploiting it themselves. So um, to be honest, I don't know. I mean, you know, even just like, Ver- you know, Git wasn't nearly as, you know, it, it wasn't even a thing. So I think that like version control was completely different back then. And like, I, I, I honestly don't know enough about it, but I, I think that you're probably right. There probably was some more freedom just naturally but also i i think that there were probably also a lot of corners that were cut by certain companies <laughs> so i i yeah i don't know enough about it actually cool well like a lot of people you know had their formative software years in web 1 but were not so drawn to these principles as you i'm wondering what kinds of experiences you had or viewpoints you had that that really clarified this the set of priorities that ended up setting the foundation for minds i mean i just didn't even know that it was a thing like that there was sort of this schism between you know sites and apps that care about your freedom and sites that don't so as soon as i realized that there were and that places like fire you know mozilla and wikipedia and linux and you know, Tor and all, all of these uh, really important open source projects. Like once I realized that those existed and that, hey, I could use, you know, Firefox as opposed to Safari, like people don't know that that's even a choice that matters in any way. They just get their computer and they just use the browser that's on it. So and I, I used to be super, and still am, into like, you know, local organic food. And I care about where things that I use come from and like how they affect the world. So, you know, I, I, I totally love the philosophy of voting with your dollars. I mean, that is how the world changes by, you know, where people put their energy. So the fact that I could now apply that to my usage of the internet, that was like a huge breakthrough for me. Yeah. It sounds kind of like, I mean, I love the the lifeboat metaphor that goes into Bitcoin where, you know, there's this legacy financial system that everyone is sick of. And the way out of it is, you know, build this alternative that people can escape to. It seems like Minds has kind of taken a very similar approach. Um, has that has that been deliberate? 
I think that we knew from the beginning that, you know, transparency was inevitable. Like, cause if you just look at the examples of the initial open source systems that just took over the market, Linux, Wikipedia, Firefox, Firefox is struggling a little bit now, but, um, you know, I think that we've seen in that, you know, Bitcoin starting to take over financial markets. It's like, this is a pattern. And so absolutely early on, I saw that there was no major social network that was open source. And that to me was just a gaping hole that needed to be filled. So, and it was, it was obvious to me, uh, instinctually that, all systems will eventually gravitate towards being open source. And I think that what happened more so with Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and crypto is that, you know, not only will they be open source, but they'll be more peer to peer and decentralized. That wasn't as much of a thing like 10 years ago. You know, we definitely still had people talking about that and you had torrents and you had, you know, different peer to peer systems that like changed the internet in certain ways. But I think that crypto is doing a good job of, of making decentralization more uh, intuitive. Yeah, absolutely. Like one of the, one of the things that excited me about crypto was when I was a big Reddit user, I was excited by the way it could disseminate weird information quickly and something obscure could gain attention really quickly from like this sort of crowdsourced effect. But it was too easily controlled and corporatized and uh, heavily moderated and censored and things like that. And I was thinking, you know, in 2014, I didn't know anything about crypto, that man, it would be great if this was some kind of, if there was a way to do this in a public service style of a way where it could be maintained and not necessarily belong to anyone. And I just had no ideas at the time, but it seems like crypto might afford things like that. Yeah, I think Web2 definitely, you know, one of the good things about it is that it just democrat, it more democratized information in a way. And it, it democratized the ranking of information, Reddit specifically. Um, it let anyone become a brand and content creator it let anyone broadcast and that was a huge deal i mean like we needed to go through that process and we still we're still in that process like i don't see actually web 2 as necessarily like disappearing in this because because you know obviously as decentralized as possible is ideal but there but it, it decentralization is a spectrum, whether or not some people want to admit that. The fact is that human beings, you know, exist in, you know, have relationships with each other. And in order to start an organization, you have centralized groups of people. And, and so there's not like there are ways to design systems to have maximum decentralization, but even in those systems, you know, it's often that it's, it's small groups of people. So I, I, I think that 
we need to like reframe how we're approaching centralization, but like, it's not as if servers, central servers are just going to go away. There will be purposes for using servers for a number of reasons. And you just don't want the core protocol to be dependent on, you know, a system that can easily go down because that puts everybody at risk. But in terms of like data processing, uh, data pipelines, you know, research, you know, a lot of the data science tools that exist now, like, you know, you want servers, you need servers to do a lot of that heavy processing. And, you know, for a lot of video stuff and I, so, so most industries will move towards open source and decentralized systems, but I don't think that every system needs to become decentralized just um just jumping back a little bit would you would you agree with my description of mines or do you do you personally see it as something different i mean it's not only for people who have been deplatformed i mean there's like less than a percent of the people on the network have been deplatformed <laughs> so you know it we're we're happy to be a place where, you know, if you got kicked off of Facebook for some BS reason that, you know, you still have a place where you can communicate. And like, ultimately, we do, you know, we have a whole kind of de-radicalization through free speech initiative that we're working on. Because if you look at the actual research around censorship, it almost invariably shows that censorship causes more violence, extremism, and polarization than, uh, than not, even though big tech sites are all saying that they're making the internet safer, they're actually making it more dangerous by doing what they're doing. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a very important core tenet that you know, free speech is foundational to the functioning of any kind of healthy society or community or network. Um, but I also think people should have like maximum control over, over what they're seeing. And so it's, um, it, it's, it's a part of it. It's, I, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to, to define in like a few words, what we are. You know, I, th I think that there's there's no brevity requirement. I would love to delve deep into the into the philosophy that you've. I mean, ultimately, we you know, we're minds. I want the network to be a sort of manifestation of what the minds on the network want it to be. So, you know, by being open source, like ultimately it's it, it's like a community evolving network and we want to be a, more of a people powered network where um yeah the and and I, I think the direction that that goes is you know going to stick to the principles but i i also think that it sh it should be open and i don't you know long term i mean there are a bunch of forks of mines out there there's a lot of, there's a lot of people working on it building their own versions and so yeah, I don't know. I'll I'll kind of get anxiety if I get if if I get too much into the semantics and the language of it because we've had so many 
long debates as I'm sure you guys have had with like identity, you know, brand identity and like, what are we, what, like, what's the, the different slogans and whatnot. I mean, ultimately, you know, we're an, an open source social network. Um, and you know, beyond that, there's lots of stuff that you can do. You can earn crypto, you can, uh, you know, you can engage in civil discourse, you can protect your privacy, you can, uh, you know, earn revenue share, you can connect with people that are like you, you can connect with people who are totally different from you. Um, and we are also working on like a more fully decentralized version. We've started building on ceramic, which I don't know if you guys are familiar with them. Um, sort of like a mutable layer on IPFS and it's real, it's really interesting. And so we do kind of see, we, we want to have more of like a pure web three app and then, but you know, again, web two is really useful for a lot of people who know nothing about crypto and like don't have any idea what you know a web3 wallet is and you know how to kind of interface with with that world so it's it's good to have like an onboarding mechanism and if we want crypto to go mainstream like we really do need to be thinking about that like you know web2 typically has great user user experience so i think that web3 needs to remember those design prin principles and you know, the, the hurdle, the, the, the wallet hurdle is, I think it's necessary and it's a learning curve that most people are going to, are going to have to figure out whether they want to or not. But, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done. I mean, specifically with like mobile, um, because the world is very much mobile now, but like we're talking about web three. And I think that there's a lot of, I don't know, have you, have you guys uh, run into any of the issues with like the wallet deep linking on mobile? <laughs> Do you have a mobile app? Are you... we, we don't have a mobile app. We just have a mobile version of the web app that you can access through a mobile web browser. But mobile is, is an, like a, a super layer on top of UX because it has a whole different set of constraints. And UX and crypto, as, you've, as you're saying right now, is already one of the biggest challenges and hurdles. So we're kind of at the mercy of the entire industry's progress on that. Yeah. Yeah. Getting the, getting the wallet connect to deep link on, even if you're running from a web app and then it's having to grab your mobile wallet, like, you know, these are the kinds of existential things that, that crypto needs to figure out. I know the wallet connect team is working really hard on, 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 on improving that, but I, I, yeah. I, th I think the whole ecosystem should, should contribute to, you know, making, making that improve because it, it really is this kind of like common tool that many, many projects are adopting and it's really foundational to like everything functioning. Yeah. Yeah. It, it also seems possible that NFTs are onboarding so many people into web three directly that by the time the UX of crypto dramatically improves, there will be a lot more people who don't need that improvement in order to function because they'll already be familiar with Web3 wallets, especially given that like Brave browser, for example, is sort of building their own version of MetaMask like directly into Brave. And I think we'll see more solutions like that where the wallet and the browser, like the line between the two kind of begins to blur or even disappear. Um, so I'm... While Idea Markets UX in particular is probably at the worst 
worst condition it's ever going to be. The good news is it's in the worst condition it's ever going to be because there's all these, uh, you know, all these efforts being made in the right direction and the demographics are shifting. Like the amount of people who own NFTs and are going to in the next year is just mind boggling given all the sports partnerships that NFTs are doing. Like it wouldn't surprise me if Rainbow Wallet or Argent becomes the next Chrome browser just by the sheer demand there's going to be for those things. Mm. Right. And yeah, I've, I've noticed kind of the browser within MatterMask recently. So yeah, that, that does make a lot of sense that actually the wallet will become the browser and that we might see wallets kind of get more into the browser space from wallet first and Brave's going like browser first and pulling and obviously Brave's doing amazing things. Love Brave. But yeah, that, that would be really cool to, to, to see some wallets get more into the browser space. Um, and I agree with you. Yeah, people are are getting through the hurdle regardless of, of how difficult it is. And that really just shows how powerful freedom is. Though a lot of people in the NFT space, I don't think really know that what they're doing is giving them freedom. But that's a good thing too. Like I, when, when freedom becomes just a background process, that's where we need to be. Yeah, you need you need like the sugar to make the medicine go down. Like you have to find a way to make it fun and quirky, and that's that's like the really exciting, weird, magical alchemy that happens with like the just the silliest things are like the sugar coating on the biggest pills. Like Dogecoin and crazy NFTs and stuff are all bringing people into what's really this sort of techno futurist, uh, hopefully solar punk kind of movement through things that from the outside appear to just be nonsense or absurd or expressions of sheer existential angst. Like I'm just going to buy Dogecoin because it's the stupidest thing I can possibly do. And that's, you know, performance art in some way. You yeah. Know? You know, I saw um, one of the Gitcoin founders posted a good meme the other day about the kind of, two pass and it was like morpheus with two pills you know the green pill was the solar punk future and might have been the black pill i forget what the other pill color was they weren't the same colors as blue and red but the other one was more like dystopian kind of casino get rich crypto and then green pill was like public goods open source and so it is true that some meme coins and whatnot do guide people in to freedom, but not necessarily, you know, some of them can bring you kind of in the door, but then take you down the wrong next door. And that, totally. that, 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 you know, people really need to be aware of that. It's like every crypto isn't like, it may have, uh, you know, it may be a token that you own and control and have to have a wallet and like under, you know, it, it teaches you about public and private keys, but it's not a healthy project that is fair for the people. And I think it's um, that education needs to keep happening. So just because it's crypto doesn't mean it's good, but there I think is kind of a core technological benefit of crypto in general so it's a little bit of both. yeah yeah that makes perfect sense i mean like 
the challenging part of freedom is that it gives you the freedom to harm yourself. And crypto, you know, might just be increasing the iteration rate of learning. Like you can, you can more easily become free in a certain way, but you can more easily get spanked by reality in another way. Um, so maybe, you know, maybe that's, that's the cycle that it's, that, you know, that the freedom includes kind of both forks of the path. I think that's a good, a good connection to make. So one one thing that's one thing that's interesting to me. I mean, considering Minds has now been around, what is it, six, six years? Yeah. So six years in this space is, um, I think for for it's quite a long time, really, because this, you know the space is pretty new in terms of its uh, at least being being well known. I mean, twenty fifteen really would have been when it started to take off, and twenty seventeen with the, the that first huge sort of surge in in interest due to you know the rise in Bitcoin price and Ethereum price. But in one thing. I guess I'd like to ask is, is there anything now that you've had to deal with with mines which you just never foresaw in the beginning? Like it's entered into a space that you just you just never saw this coming. I would say that I didn't realize initially being more focused on the open source concept that I would ultimately be kind of fighting for the freedom of, you know, a small subset of like kind of volatile people because, you know, with, with free speech, you know, you end up like it, it, it is the core principle to defend the free speech of people whose ideas you oppose. And if you aren't willing to do that, then you really don't care, care about free speech. And those people are fully capable of evolving their opinions. So if you don't give them a platform to speak their minds, then there isn't quite literally no possible way that they can change their minds. So, you know, the, 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 the coming from a place of compassion is the only way to actually engage in global discourse. And if you want people to change, then you have to be willing to talk to them. And if, if you're not, then you don't really care about change. You just care about changing your own little house, but you're just, you know, and that that's, you know, metaphorically what I think big tech is doing. They're sort of just push, they're, they're pushing the problem out of their house and just, you know, making it someone else's problem. So, and those people are guaranteed just get reinforced in their bad ideas. So I wasn't expecting to necessarily be defending people that I personally disagree with so much, but it, it's a very satisfying experience to go through, it, you know, frustrating at times, but yeah, getting to that place where, you know, you feel total confidence in what you're doing, even if, you know, it's the the media is not necessary. Some of the media is starting to be more friendly to this idea because it's really like an undeniable idea, even in terms of the data around the issue. But you know, when you have to defend people who you don't agree with, it's it's not easy all the time, especially when people attack you for doing that. That's awesome. Are there any particular um, stories or cases you'd be willing to share? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, well, you know, we all know that the media is just brutally polarized 
and that some media understands free speech and other media have chosen to forget about it. And so, yeah, I mean, I've definitely like the vast majority of the media coverage of us actually has, and we've done it. We put a lot of effort into communicating with, with all the different sides of the media and, and explaining our thesis and how, you know, we're not just kind of having a free for all with no point to it. Like we actually do believe that dialogue will improve over time when it's in a free speech environment. But like I had one interview with vice probably two years ago, three years ago. And I talked to them for like two hours and they were so, you know, nice on the phone and hearing me out. I explained to them about our partnership with Daryl Davis, who's a, you know, famous, has a famous Ted talk and has done heroic work around de-radicalization. He is a black man who, convinced over 200 members of the KKK to leave the KKK. And he did that by befriending them. And he's on, he's an advisor at, at Minds. And he, he runs his whole podcast at Minds, at minds.com slash change. And we, I explained them the whole philosophy, a lot of the research, and they just ended up writing this hit piece that was so disingenuous and, um, manipulative and really just agenda based not wanting to actually understand that oh yeah maybe there would be value in in seeing the impact of uh, a more open community on dialogue over time and that yeah actually culturally that would be important data for us to have so that we can confirm that you know people can change their minds um, but no, they just kind of wanted to focus on like the three accounts that they decided to uh, f- go and find and, and deem to be problematic. And, you know, that's happened a couple times and it's but it's you just kind of got to go with the punches like no one's going to agree with you all the time. And if you you're always going to have haters no matter what. And, and And actually, if you don't, it might even be a bad sign. Yeah, that that makes that makes perfect sense. I I definitely want to hear more about um, this whole arm of Minds's work. Can you explain the the change program perhaps in in some more detail? Yeah. So um, yeah, we partnered with Daryl and also Parallel Networks, which is a counterterrorism group uh, founded by Jesse Morton, who's a former Al Qaeda recruiter who who changed. Um, you know, kind of became enlightened to his uh, brainwashing. And now he dedicates his life to to dialogue and combating extremism. And so we have a paper that we're going to be releasing probably early in Q1 that we also worked with uh, Allen Analytics and... Uh, Dr. Justin Lane and a number of other PhDs on just bringing all the research that exists around the correlation between censorship and violence and extremism into one place so that because, you know, there's just no place that you can really go and see all of this and, and understand the argument. So we really wanted to create sort of an anthology 
for people because, you know, defending free speech isn't easy. And it's really nice if yeah. you have a, a massive body of evidence behind, you know, rather than just saying free speech, it's like free speech with data. Um, is It's a much more powerful argument. So that's why we've we've gone into it. And, you know, we're also working on these jury systems for more community curation, moderation, which, you know, overlaps, honestly, a, a fair amount with what you guys are up to. And yeah, I mean, I ultimately, we want to see over 10 over the, you know, decade, haven't decided the exact time frame for the study, but you know, users who volunteer, we want to understand how people's minds change in all different areas, not necessarily just, you know, actual like extremists on the left and the right, but, you know, anybody whose mind changes about anything, um, whether you, some political issue, some, you know, pineapple pizza, like, I don't care. Like, how does the mind change? And, and, uh, you know, how many people are willing to change their minds when, when they, you know, get into dialogue with, with other people. Now you have to be careful because actually Sam Harris did a, a, a neurological study about this. And there is something called the backfire effect, which is when you try to convince somebody of something that is actually the moment that they shut down and don't want to be convinced. And it can actually make them less likely to change their mind when you try to change their mind. <laughs> and Daryl actually reflects this. Uh, he says that when he would sit down with like a KKK member, he would not try to change their mind. He would just sit there and listen to them for, you know, in some cases, even years. And then finally, after they've spouted off for long enough, they'll eventually ask him a question. So there's like this deep psychology at work with creating the breeding grounds for, for change to happen. And you can't just like think, Oh, we're going to go and find all of the crazy people and make them not crazy <laughs> and force them to not be crazy. This is, you know, this isn't like a, uh, insane asylum. Uh, it, you know, these are human beings and they have brains that are just as allergic to being told what to do as everybody else. So, I don't know the answer, to be honest, but what I do know is that you can't change someone's mind if you can't talk to them. 100%. And this is just one of my favorite topics of all time, how do minds change? And I, yeah. man, we could go in a million directions with yeah. this. I just, I just want to hear more. Um, I mean, there have been some really interesting studies specifically um, there was one, uh, there's this idea of the toothpaste tube effect where there was this study done on Tumblr where it was, uh, analyzing pro anorexia content, which that exists, <laughs> I guess. Sure. And, uh, you know, as, uh, all the, all the crazy stuff that exists exists, but, you know, just just showing that when you try to stamp it out, it just it just pops up somewhere somewhere else and it can really hurt these people when when you try to stamp it out. Also, there was a huge study done on Reddit where they analyzed like hundreds of millions of posts and they were kind of analyzing the efficacy of Reddit censorship because Reddit actually has become 
pretty pro censorship in the last number of years, even though they originally weren't. And actually, this is a this is a good story related to Vice. So Vice did a piece on that study, and it was called. It, they titled it something ridiculous, like Reddit's. Reddit study proves censorship works. It was some ridiculous title like that. But if you actually read the study, it says that in, I think even in the abstract, that quite clearly these accounts just went to other, you know, darker forums on the internet. So, you know, when you say censorship works, what are you actually saying? Like, Okay, yeah, if you ban the Trump subreddit, did you get rid of that? I mean, yeah, you got rid of it. You censored it. So it, if that's what you're defining as working, okay, <laughs> that's one definition of working. Um, but it it definitely made all of those uh, Trump supporters think that Reddit is completely insane and for good reason. So the study didn't say that it worked. It said that they just went somewhere else, which is how networks happen. I mean, it it just they it's whack-a-mole. It's this is like network topology. You've got, you know, the internet is a network of networks. So th that's just the manipulation that's happening and you know, also if you look at like the Chappelle special uh that got you know the, where there was all this controversy around it recently. Um, basically, peop, there were a lot of articles that were saying that Dave Chappelle, his special is like causing real world harm. And, you know, this is, this, these are the word games that they play. There may have, so yes, there, there may have been some studies that show that there can be kind of emotional discomfort or even damage from experiencing uh, negative content. Okay, no one's denying that, <laughs> that, you know, content can affect your brain. But conflating, you know, emotional discomfort or stress with real world harm is that's a big leap. You know, you're kind of, you're, you're going from, uh, a, a altered mental state to something that will then get conflated with violence. So real world harm. And then, and then, and then other outlets will take real world, real harm and say violence. So, but, but there's no, there's no evidence of that. And actually, if you watch the Dave Chappelle special, the whole thing was about his trans friend who opened up for him at his comedy show and who eventually committed suicide. Most of the people who were, you know, I'm not going to say I agree with everything he said in the special, but, you know, it was about his trans friend. So mo most people didn't even watch it and they just assumed that he was uh, doing what the media was telling them. So I think that busting this myth about the correlation between censorship and violence and making the world a better place through censorship. I mean, that just needs to be busted. 
And I, it's getting busted. I think that most people don't fall for it, but there's also a huge group of people who, who are still falling for it. So got to fix that. Yeah, absolutely. And especially when, when status is, is put behind it and it's made to look like the sanctioned opinion that we should keep people away from things that we should shut certain people up that there's that some group of people does have the right to assert itself as the adults in the room and to make the kids be quiet, sit at another table. Hmm. Um, the New York times does this a lot. Have you seen the official idea market t-shirt? It's got a New York times article that says, don't go down the rabbit hole. It's discouraging people. It says, uh, critical thinking as we're taught to do it isn't helping in the fight against misinformation. That's the subtitle. And the, our official t-shirt is our logo just slicing through this article. I regret that I'm not wearing it right now. Nice. But uh, yeah, um, if just looking at, at basic psychology and the evolution of psychology, when Freud was studying it, he came to psychoanalysis through hypnosis. He would use hypnosis and his teacher, his mentor, would use hypnosis to cure hysteria, which at the time referred to um, traumas being like repressed into a body part. So there'd be a guy who just couldn't move his arm. There was nothing physically wrong with it, but he had some kind of issue Mm. that he would like bioenergetically keep over here and for no physiological reason have no access to his arm. And Freud would hypnotize him and say, okay, you can move your arm now. And then he could move his arm, but then something else would be paralyzed because that underlying like psychological trapped energy like wouldn't have an outlet still. It doesn't solve it. And that's kind of like what, what repression does, what suppression of information does. That on a very basic psychological level, ideas and beliefs just don't respond like physical objects. If you bury it, it doesn't stay down. It finds another outlet. Hmm. Um, and I just want to underline uh, that point because it's kind of a universal and universally observable law. Bombing terrorists makes more terrorists. And the more obvious and widespread this knowledge is, the more clearly we can see the huge and absurd gap between what the knowledge authorities say they're doing or think they're doing and the effects that they create. Because that gap is just absurd it's just super weird mm. if they if they're interested in the in the outcome then they should be more uh reasonable about it and, and take the actions that actually create that outcome yeah and i think that most people and companies would agree with a statement like access to information is a net benefit for humanity and you know that's just obvious from what the internet has done itself, but even, you know, printing press, whatever kind of revolutionary media technology you want to talk about. And so people will agree with that, but then they won't agree with, you know, declassifying all of the government secrets that everybody wants access to. Uh, They won't agree with, um, you know, Like, for instance, Google, Facebook, Twitter, they all have different versions of their sites in many different countries. They're called interstitials. And so, like, there's a different Twitter in Pakistan 
than there is in the US. And it's kind of based on the con they have different content policies for all of these countries too. And it's super hypocritical because a lot of them will say, oh no, we would never, you know, bow to China. We would never uh, you know, censor Google for China. But they censor it for Pakistan. And it's basically very similar censorship. So it's like they know that access to information matters and that it's probably one of the, the most revolutionary forces you could unleash on any authoritarian country to have them to have them change. But they'll still play that game. And so, you know, open source is really about access to information as well. And. So, you know, I'm just hopeful that as technology evolves, we just get access to more and more information. And it's sort of, be, you know, r regardless of if like, you know, the financial system wants to be more transparent with the world or like various central banks, like the beauty of, of Bitcoin is that it's just going parallel and it's just doing it regardless of if the central banks are going to change. And so we, th there comes a point where you just have to hop over the legacy system and just start, start building the new system where there is actual access to information and it's a, it's a fair system. And I, I keep thinking about this recently. I think I, I've, I've started to see some other comments popping up about it, but it's, it's so beautiful to me that Bitcoin and, you know, Ethereum and others attract both sides of the political spectrum. I mean, because Bitcoin is and, and Ethereum, like there's a lot of people like kind of pro-socialism who like Ethereum, but obviously like all the anarcho-libertarians love it as well. That means that something is going right. When you can attract the opposite polarities, people who would never want anything to do with each other, but they both see kind of the fair, sound economic policies that are at work and, you know, how the governance is happening, that it honestly gives me hope. Like, and I think, I think people need to talk about that more because, you know, when communists and capitalists agree on something, it's like, okay, let's, let's, let's focus on that. Absolutely. Could not agree more. And that's, that's a really exciting aspect of crypto and something that, uh, I've observed recently is crypto is giving people of each demographic a new language to relate to the other. Like the ideas of con of com communism or socialism and capitalism under those names have been so polluted with political weight and like identity group weight that it's really kind of costly and shameful for people to be showing each other lenience on those things across those aisles but crypto has given people this new language for talking about those things where it becomes permissible to talk about them for example you see lifetime venture capitalists top a-list vcs who are just the most the very incarnation of capitalism right talking about the merits of social ownership and how that's the future inevitably and if you go to Wikipedia and you look at socialism, in the first paragraph, it says, well, there's a lot of kinds of socialism, but what they all have in common is social ownership of the means of production. And so they're, they're literally talking about these things just couched in a different kind of a framework. And yeah, you're right. That's, that's, that's an incredibly um, 
optimistic, optimistic development. development. Well, like because you can be profit driven and also understand that, you know, community ownership, individual ownership is what is inevitably going to be the most viral. I mean, that's, yeah, that's what the users want. And if you care about the users and if you care about the growth moving into, you know, the 2020s, like you don't, it's, there's no choice. I mean, if you, if, if you don't do that, then you are going to become more and more irrelevant and despised by the users because now that these options exist, you know, I, and I love that. It's like, you know, cause regardless of, you know, it'd be better if, if, you know, I think some of the VCs get it in our, you know, get it from like a real honest place. Others are kind of getting dragged into they're like, oh, okay, I guess this is the, <laughs> but you know, whatever path it is, is better, you know, cause we need the legacy systems to transform. We want them. We don't want just like a, uh, schism between, you know, all of the legacy systems and, and the new system because, you know, that's polarized. We, we want the, the yeah. legacy systems to change as well. Um, so, and I, I think that they, I think that they will because ultimately there, there are humans in there who get it. And, you know, you can even just see it with all of the politicians that are becoming friendly to crypto. It's, it's, it's not, there's not really a debate even. It's more so just once you get it, you get it. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's, it's like, it's just information. I mean, it's, it's, it's data that isn't really like when you compare Bitcoin with the fed, I mean, all of the smartest people in the world are figuring it out. And it's becoming like there, there are very few really, really smart people that I can even find. I try to go and find them so that I can like steel man their argument and understand like all of the best arguments against crypto. But I, I mean, can you, who, can you even find anybody? Like, do you, do you know, of, who, who do you think is the most compelling anti-Bitcoin, anti-crypto voice? I've not been trying to find these, but I would be interested to know what Michael Burry's argument is because he seems to have soured on Bitcoin and crypto recently. And he's, you know, the big short guy. He's famous for predicting the long shots. So while I have no idea what his argument is, and I'm definitely not an expert on the anti-crypto arguments, I would I'd be interested to see why a man of his sort of character orientation um, is so is so anti crypto, especially this late in the game. Yeah, I've seen I, I've seen some of those articles, and I would also like to dive in. Let, let's do that. Let's follow up on that because yeah, you would think with his kind of ability to just analyze data that he would. I mean, he has total access to everything he needs to understand yeah. what the market is doing. Um. There was one debate with this gold bug guy that I would have to, I think he might've been debating Michael Saylor. Um, Is it Peter Schiff? He's kind of the No, famous... not Peter Schiff. Uh, he's sort of like, <laughs> okay. I, I don't even know if he's being serious anymore. <laughs> oh, I agree. I agree. Yeah. The, I don't want to go down on that tangent. The, 
one one thing I'd say about the anti-Bitcoin sentiment, I mean, I'm the same. I haven't really seen too many people and I don't really go looking for it. But the one writer who I would mention in this regard is Dmitry Orlov, who's written Five Stages of Collapse and uh, is one of the more intelligent people who's talking about the collapse of society. But he's equally, he's not like some collapsitarian who thinks it's all going to suddenly smash down. He's more of a patchwork collapse in that some places will be doing quite well and most of most places won't. But his argument against Bitcoin is in relation to energy and energy uses. And he even he admits that, well, okay, the energy expenditure in certain places with regards to Bitcoin is pretty bad or certain cryptos is pretty bad. But that isn't to say that the uh, the technology that we're using and the means, the means that we're using within the technology couldn't be utilized in some in better fashion. So I think the arguments against Bitcoin have to come from, almost have to come from a different foundation. Right? You literally have to see the world differently first. And then, because if, if you're just seeing it as it basically is, I don't want to say like we're all seeing objective reality or anything, but if, if you're seeing it as it is, then I think you you sort of just have to have your head in your uh, head in the sand to find a way to ignore it, right? Like there's there's not too much against it. The only the only argument I think that's somewhat plausible is is the energy the energy usage one, right? Which is why isn't it about to be banned in Netherlands? I'm not sure. Let, let, let's talk Apparently about that so. for for a quick minute though, because I yeah. um, I mean I, I read a bunch of Nick Carter's pieces on it. And I just feel like the obvious, my obvious reaction is, okay, Bitcoin uses a lot of energy, fine. But, you know, doesn't the financial legacy system have like thousands of branch, you know, bank branches? (laughs) Like what's the footprint of banks all over the world? I mean, there's like 10 in every town. So that seems like a pretty big physical carbon footprint. Um, and I, th- I, I, I think Nick addresses that a fair amount, but yeah. yeah. I, love, I love the fact like there's so many banks in every town and they are so not needed, right? It's like this could have been digitized and put entirely, entirely online 10 years ago. If you, if you were up to date, five years ago, if you... You did it right. They are struggling like, oh, you have to come to the bank to cash your check because the machine can do it. And they finally admitted that phones can do that. And like the reasons to go to a bank now are basically they have to make them up. Otherwise, they realize the whole thing's sort of over. And then once everything's online, if you're online all the time, you might start thinking, well, hang on, I'm going to start looking for other alternatives, right? Because your interest rate basically hasn't kept up with the rate of inflation for 30 years now. So I'm off. So they got to keep you there somehow. I don't think that, I, I think that they'll probably let go of the physical bank branches in the not too distant future. I think, you know, or at least there I'm will be sure. far less of them. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, even just with COVID and, you know, the remote work phenomenon, I feel like that would have already convinced them to a certain degree, though. I don't think that they ever, you know, banks obviously didn't shut down in the same way that that other companies did. But yeah, Yeah. like every time you walk into a bank, there's no one there and everyone's sitting on their ass just like twiddling their thumbs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it makes me wonder. I definitely think 
and agree that the energy argument against Bitcoin is kind of a red herring because the question isn't how much energy is it costing? It's what's what are you getting for that cost? It's kind of like saying, is this hairdryer expensive? Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Is it really good? I guess that that's a question that matters to me in particular, even though I don't use hairdryers. But um, the my, one of my favorite takes on Bitcoin's energy expenditure comes from Balaji Srinivasan, and he says that the you know energy expenditure of Bitcoin is the nonviolent defense budget of a global currency. It's like it's not only that we're comparing Bitcoin to the banks and all the real estate that they occupy and office buildings that they illuminate and all the cars of the employees that they make drive to those office buildings every day. It's that it's also competing with the militaries that have to establish dominance for the dollar or whatever fiat currencies are being enforced in anywhere. Um, so you, you have to evaluate Bitcoin not on its cost, but also on its benefits. And that's the disingenuous part of that argument. Yeah, and that really tricks a lot of people. I have I, I, yeah. I have a bunch of family and friends who I'm sure I'll get a little bit of it this Thanksgiving, um, who are just, you know, they and they think that, you know, the, it's really kind of scary when people take these, they feel like they have morality on their side in some sort of twisted way. Like, you know, people thinking that they're like defending the earth by being against Bitcoin. It or yeah. or, or, or you know, same with people who feel like they're protecting uh, you know, marginalized communities by censoring content. It's like this this moral justification for for censorship or you know, lack of a of a more open system. And, but, you know, at the end of the day, you gotta, you gotta go through the debate and it's just going to play out out how it's going to play out. Yeah. I mean, the moral, the moral aspect is, is super interesting because it's, it goes back to the question of how do you change minds? And I think morality is kind of being used to create crusades and create like status hierarchies that anybody can latch onto. If I become a client, a climate person, then I can use climate to bludgeon people about pretty much anything. If I become, um, you know, any 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 kind of activist, social justice, or whatever, I can use the principles of that to claim moral superiority over anyone. So it just becomes this sort of um, crusade versus crusade uh, kind of battle royale, using morality as the as the backbone of of all of it. And um, this has been. You know, there's a long, a long tradition of this, that the way you get people to do bad things is you've let them find a way for them to justify it and, and make it into a good thing. Um, Aldous Huxley in particular wrote about it, saying that, you know, the height of psychological luxury is being able to do bad things with a good conscience and like for a, for a good cause. Um, and the... This sort of co-opting of, of, of morality is making it a lot harder to change people's minds because they're investing so much in these in these moral frameworks that might even be, you know, used against them or used against progress, used to prevent people from understanding Bitcoin. That's a great quote. 
I love Hoxley. He's my fave. By far. Yeah. Such an animal. Um, yeah. And I mean, Thanksgiving coming along, it's like, I've, I've sort of, <clears throat> I made a, we made a post the other day, just, you know, be the, be the peacemaker at, at Thanksgiving, you know, getting, let it, let it, letting yourself fall into one of the teams is just destined for failure. So I, yeah. I, I, I typically am trying not even to, I don't know. It, it's, it's sad because, you know, you want to participate in the debate and you want to say what you feel, but then I mean, that's why I feel like steel manning is such an important tool is like, even if you're arguing a position, you know, in that debate, when, when you steel man someone else's argument, the person that you're debating, it has the effect of not only strengthening your argument because, you know, you're finding the best versions of their argument, but they, they actually respect you because you're playing fair and you're, you know, not only are you playing fair, you're going out of your way to give them a good faith characterization. And, yeah. you know, I'm really interested in kind of building these types of ideas into the UX of minds because I just think people experience social media sometimes and they see stuff and they see things they disagree with and they're just so used to reacting and getting triggered and like, you know, dunking on somebody else. And fine, that's funny sometimes and it's necessary, but if you, you could just as easily reframe the whole experience and say, Hey, actually the point of being here is to find stuff that you disagree with and engage it in a productive way. And so, you know, when one moment somebody was seeing a piece of content that triggered them and thought that they were getting emotionally abused, um, you know, the next moment, because they've reframed their experience, they're, they're actually thinking about the human being on the other side of the keyboard. And, you know, they, they even, they're curious why that person thinks this awful thing. And they're not allowing it to affect their own state of being. And that, that's just like a useful tool, even offline to yeah. not let, I mean, th what is that? That's like one of the four agreements, which is, you know, just don't take things personally. And it really is just, it's hard. And I, I don't think any of us are, are fully capable of doing it, but, you know, bringing that to, to the internet, I think some, we have to do it because things are getting so insane and everybody's just so trigger happy every day. Yeah, I think that's an amazingly pertinent question. Like anytime, even anytime you're confronted with, with something you don't understand or a viewpoint that seems absurd, why does this person think X? I think that's, that's a really exciting uh, question. I'm wondering, it sounds also like steel manning might be part of the, um, the change program with with uh, Daryl Daryl Davis's uh, yeah. strategy of, of talking to the KKK members and listening to them is that kind of like a micro strategy? Does that set tie in? I think so. Yeah, I think that you know 
whether or not Daryl is aware of the term. I think that that's sort of naturally what he has found works just on a human to human level. Yeah. You know, when you, when you hear somebody out, you know, the best listener in the room is, is like usually one of the most liked persons in the room. So, you know, I don't know if he would like how deep he was going and like understanding all of the details of white nationalism um, and like trying to act interested in it (laughs) Um, or, 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 you know, specifically make good versions of their argument. But I think that he, he for sure, like tried to see where they were coming from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, that's kind of baked into what we're, what we're doing as well with idea market. Just the fact that so many people feel unheard and unlistened to, I'm testing the hypothesis that having the ability to make money by listening to things that might seem outrageous, um, can change, can change the incentives of that, make it less about, am I a conspiracy theorist or not? And more about, is there value here or not? And I'm really looking forward to seeing um, to what extent listening can be sort of institutionalized or or given infrastructure so that it's not something that could be taken away by uh, media corporations and, you know, the social atmosphere at large. Does that make sense? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think that that'll really change the game if, if more people can start finding value in the things that they disagree with, even you know, approaching it from like an academic, an academic place. Um, Because yeah, we like whatever conspiracy theory it is. I mean, you know, obviously there's some conspiracy theories which are completely insane, but they're coming from a certain place. Um, And with any contentious issue, you're, you have data on both sides. And hopefully this is something that we can work on together is, you know, identifying and visualizing for users the sentiment on both sides. So that if you're looking at, you know, X, uh, a post about XYZ conspiracy theory or political issue or whatever it is, that it's not the network just telling you, you know, this is true or false. It's a, it's you you have a, a probability score on both sides, and you know there'll be there can be like different references on both sides, which are which are contributing to why people think something on both sides. But like when I'm scrolling through my newsfeed and I see something that you know, like I think JFK CIA killed JFK was like trending yesterday, and because I think there was you know. So for some reason, some files didn't get declassified. So everybody's talking about that. You just want to see a little kind of visualization of, of what's happening. And, you know, if, if, if you're being told something is true or false, then that's just not helping me learn. I don't know why you're telling me that. I want to see why. And I want to see the arguments on both sides. If you're not showing the arguments on both sides, then you're you're hiding information from people to make decisions for themselves. You shouldn't if if the evidence is so overwhelming in favor of something being false, 
then when you did have that visualization, it would be like, you know, 98% of people think this way and for all of these reasons. And it's pretty much as good as a false, but it's different because it's not actually, you know, there's still that 2%. And that that 2%, the fringe is, you know, there may be cases which would be very rare, but where the fringe is right. And where, you know, because, you know, typically in the, in social evolution and technological evolution, the fringe is the ones, they're the ones coming up with the crazy ideas, which are, you know, work completely impossible. So we know from like time after time, historically, that you have to look at the fringe. And yes, the fringe is like 99% nonsense, but it's 1% literally the most revolutionary ideas that exist. So you can't, and this is the damage that the censorship is causing too, because when you granted, yeah, you're okay. You might be getting rid of like a, a, a lot of toxic stuff, but you're also getting rid of your, there's collateral damage in there, which, you know, you might be losing access to some of the best ideas that humanity has ever known. So that's, that's really scary. And so, so unfortunately we, we kind of just have to grow up a little bit and be able to deal with some more of the toxic stuff in order to be able to get access to those little, you know, nuggets. Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. Like I'm, I'm reminded a little bit of the judicial notion in, in America that it's in, in theory, people say it's better to let uh, 10 guilty go free than the one than to imprison or, or kill one innocent. And the, this principle seems to apply at least this much to information and to ideas, because it's, it's one thing to silence a bunch of conspiracy theorists or some kind of a mob. It's another to in silencing that mob prevent a new cure for cancer from arising for an additional hundred years or something like that. And just that we don't know the costs we pay for keeping the fringe on the fringe. And I think they're astronomical. I think the amount of value that can be unlocked just by better accessing what someone on earth already knows uh, is really, really impossible to imagine. Mike, I was just going to ask, are we, are we discussing the the thing that's coming up um sure we can we can we can discuss anything yeah i just meant uh, it might not of... might not necessarily be public but yeah let's, okay. let's discuss anything okay. the, well i just meant as we're discussing as we as you're both here the yeah what's going on with minds and idea market the connection are we discussing that uh, okay cool well okay well i think Mike, if you introduce it, and then Bill, you perhaps why it, why uh, you know how you see idea market working sort of the, synthetically with minds to bolster both visions. Yeah, so we were introduced by our our friend Grit Cult, and I've I've been aware of minds for a long time and seen the sort of philo- philosophical alignment, and I didn't get until recently just how deep that goes with the question, you know, how do minds change 
uh, from this conversation has just been so foundational, I believe, to to both of you know the work that we're each doing. And we built Idea Market to be this kind of Lego, this kind of universal access port into market curation for social media platforms. And so I'm I'm really um, gratified that uh, you, Bill, and, and the Minds Network may see value in using Idea Market for that kind of a purpose. And I'm really excited to test some of the hypotheses that it seems like we share. Yeah, absolutely. It's been it's been pretty cool to experience, you know, the chaos of open networks and, you know, you watch, especially because we incentivize users with tokens and we have this whole reward system, which people find a, a lot of value in. you can earn tokens for your contributions and, and promote content with them. And, you know, but the reality is that with that comes some uh, manipulation. And so, you know, creating civil resistance and building feeds based on markets um, and people, like I mentioned in the beginning, voting with their dollars, I think is just it's sort of obvious. Um, I'm not going to say that there's not potential risks of that as well, but when you compare them to other risks, I think, you know, there's always going to be risks in any path you take and in free systems, there are risks in, you know, very, uh, regulated systems, there are risks and you got to pick, um, which, you're going to go with and which has the the greater net benefit. So obviously community curation is the future open algorithms. So yeah, I mean, it seems like a really obvious relationship to, to pursue and we're really interesting to, to apply it to some of our feeds and, and see what happens. Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited about the algorithmic applications, which I had not begun to think about, um, you know, we're just, we're just creating price signals. And if, if you do kind of algorithmic curation with that, then it derives even more of the flywheel of attention being a bet of, um, where people put their money there. So goes attention as well. And by kind of tightening this relationship, we can give people more control over what the public sees and pays attention to and values. Because just so much of the challenge that we face right now is the centralization of, of the idea of, of legitimacy, of what deserves to be seen. And if we allow the public to express that um, in a way that's difficult to fake, I'm really excited to see what kinds of valuable information that would turn up from the fringe as well as anywhere else. Yeah. I'm curious, uh, you know, how you have seen it work so far, um, with Twitter where, I mean, are, are you seeing, do, do you feel like it is mirroring your initial hypothesis? So far, the main activity has been people finding ways to long the platform as a whole. 
They'll buy the things that will blow up if the platform blows up, which is why you have guys like Elon Musk and Joe Rogan at the top. But even having someone like Joe Rogan at the top signals something like um, that the marketplace of ideas or of credibility is having liquidity given to it. That you don't see, like Joe Rogan's audience is about the same size as CNN's or possibly even bigger now. But you don't see Joe Rogan up next to CNN on Wall Street or like included in that cohort uh, because there's not really a level playing field between those two people, even though they're technically in the same business. They're in the trust earning business in a certain respect. They're in the, the uh, sense making on behalf of the masses business in a certain respect. And so to provide that level playing field uh, is is going to continue to get more interesting to get a sense of, of who people actually trust. Because if, if we try to figure that out right now, there's not really a decentralized way to see what do people really believe? Who do they really trust? Any kinds of questions like that have to be answered by referring to some sort of centralized source. Corporate media, social media, a polling company, uh, a, a democratic election, which has all kinds of uh, manipulations going on uh, in its periphery and in its infrastructure. Um, so I'm excited to see what kind of transparency crypto and markets can bring to that that question. What's what's the belief and trust landscape actually look like? Yeah, and I mean, just looking at your ranking so far, it's Professor Plum is the other skeptic. See, it's funny you've got Michael Burry and Prof Plum ninety nine as you know right up there with vitalik and elon and they're they're sort of some of the the smart skeptics and that's what that's what you really want to see you want to see the skeptics the people who disagree with you that you do respect because you know that they're at least approaching things from first principles generally speaking so i think that you know looking at looking at your rankings it's it's very much like on the pulse of of the zeitgeist, you know, with Snowden and, you know, even AOC and Barstool, like, you know, these are for better or worse, like the, it's, it's like the new mainstream basically. And no, I mean, not worse. I think that it's, it's, it's for the better. It's like, you know, AOC, regardless of if, you know, how you feel about her politics at the end of the day, you have to respect her hustle in that she, you know, she won that election through pure hustle. And yeah. she is very good with social media. And, you know, I saw for, like even recently I saw, do you know Abby Martin? Name sounds familiar, but I don't think I do. Is she, she a Congress? She's person? a journalist. Um, She's a journalist. She's she's been on Rogan a bunch, um, and she's on Minds. And she like she confronted AOC at a, a climate summit recently, and just brought up the fact that, which I didn't realize, that in most climate um, usage statistics, military is actually not included for most for for like when when the big climate. <laughs> summits are happening They're Yeah. They're not including the military, <laughs> which is just shocking. And actually AOC like completely agreed with her when she confronted about that was confronted about that. So I think that 
I would predict that long term AOC will actually be, you know, she be, she's much less establishment than than I think people realize and that, you know, given given something like I would not be surprised and I don't actually even know that much about her, but like if long term you saw AOC be like bullish on crypto. Just because she's because she's coming at everything from like we were talking about with, you know, the left and the right both becoming attracted to it because of the economics. And I I think that she's savvy enough to, to, you know, maybe not initially understand that, but eventually go for it. And those are the people that I'm really interested in finding and bringing on to minds because they're just a little bit more open-minded and you know i saw i forget the quote that i saw recently but it was it was a little bit of a sad quote but i think that there's a lot of truth to it that you know change ultimately happens when the previous generation just dies off yeah which I think is it was, sad i might be wrong but i think it was max planck saying that Ma- science i progresses think you're right funeral of time yeah that's yeah that's I think we can do better yeah Let, let's see if we can do better. yeah let's see if we can do better i think that we can maybe uh maybe bust that a little bit but you know unfortunately some minds in not it's not that they can't get changed but the amount of energy that it would take to change their minds because they're so entrenched and you know it would be just an uh, unfeasible amount of energy but you know hopefully that yeah if there can be tools i would not be surprised if if maybe these are tools that we're developing right now are you know helping people do that because if you know without technology can solve so many problems why couldn't it help us you know, help our brains become more flexible. And, it, yeah, it, but it's also absolutely. that you're, it's changing minds isn't an inherent good thing. I mean, I think who was it? Uh, what's that magician guy uh, who died? Who was the big skeptic? Uh, the uh, Oh, James Randi. James Randi. Yeah. He had, I think his quote was, you know, be open-minded, but not too open-minded that your brain falls out. And, you know, that that's just true. Like just be changing your mind isn't inherently good. I mean, you could change your mind in the wrong direction. Um, so, but, but I think that the general, there's like a general layer of openness that you want. And then there's also a layer of, um, firmness that you want. So it's not just like open-minded is better than being closed-minded. Like, you know, you probably want to be closed or more closed to, you know, like murder. I mean, there's a variety of topics, which in everything it has its like nuanced context. But, you know, it's not. It, yeah. So I, again, it's it's like an underlying principle. It's not that it in itself is a good thing. If everyone's changing their mind and like abandoning their first principles, then that's not the better world. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you're you're framing it in terms of how much energy does it take to take your to change your mind is is really cogent because there is a kind of economics to it. There is a kind of uh, like psychological uh, game theory 
to it that when you change your mind, you're not only deciding what you believe, but you're changing the context for all your past actions. You're changing the context context for all your relationships, for your sense of identity and community. These are costs. And to the extent that these costs become higher, the costs, the, the cost, the, the, um, the kind of bandwidth within you don't have to pay a cost becomes narrower. And so the walls between tribes becomes higher. And uh, I think there's a lot of room just at the metaphor level to change this. If we, if we just kind of switched off of the idea that like the truth is a thing that you can possess like with certainty, and then it becomes your job to enforce it on others. This is like a crusade level epistemology. Um, but if we can change that into a market related epistemology, um, risk management what are the costs and benefits of believing this versus that what if this is true it's you know it's this likely or it's this unlikely um there's there's a there's a naturalness to that in that we are constantly making bets with our with our beliefs um and they have they have consequences and within within a market you have people who have different risk tolerances and you can let people decide for themselves what their risk tolerances are going to be. Are they going to be James Randi and be kind of maybe moderate to conservative? Or are they going to be super credulous and place a hundred crazy bets so that one or two can cure cancer and be amazing? Um, just, just by changing the metaphor around beliefs, we can help people go, oh, this changing my mind isn't that weird. It's just about pursuing a more accurate map or, or placing bets that pay off better than they did in the past. And I think some of the evidence we can see for this is in the fact that the respect that Wall Street opposition, that investors with different opinions have for each other is far greater than the respect that like mainstream liberals and conservatives have for each other. It's a very tribal, like, you're the enemy, you're evil, you're stupid, you're trying to destroy America in your free time just for fun kind of attitude between political spectrums. But Wall Street bulls and bears are like, I disagree with you, but you're just trying to make money. And there's there's a lot more of like a trust across opinion groups because there's this sense that I know you're doing your honest best. And if you're not, you're literally paying for the privilege. Have you... How do you explain in to a skeptic that, you know, the idea that, you know, misinformation is, you know, there actually is financial market incentive in creating misinformation? Sure. So like you said earlier, that there will always be risks. Um, there will always be benefits to deceiving people to a certain degree. But if we can make the costs higher and the benefits lower, then that will naturally occur less. Because I think the real goal is not to make it impossible to be evil, but to just make it look as absurd as it actually is. Um, an absurd time, like a bad, a morally degenerate society is one in which we look at like good behavior or moral behavior and go, that's absurd. Why would anyone do that when I have all these advantages that I can exploit? But if we can build systems that make uh, doing more beneficial things seem more reasonable, 
then just kind of naturally people will gravitate more to that than they currently do. And it's not something that has to be forced. It's just about changing the conditions in which people are making these decisions. Does that make sense? It's very abstract. No, no, absolutely. And I think that there will be transitional periods where, you know, you do see people testing the waters and trying to manipulate the markets, but then like on the longer term basis, it, it will sort of work itself out and people will, you know, even if they do get some kind of short term benefit in, you know, betting on misinformation, then it just won't pan out long term, and so it'll 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 become yeah. not worth it. Yeah, yeah. And there's this um, there's this notion in, I guess it's in depth psychology, where like you get power over a demon when you learn its name. When you know what the thing is that's tormenting you, and you just say, "Oh, you're Beelzebub," then it like disappears in a puff of smoke. Like when you know what the thing is, you have this control over it that you didn't before. You have this power over it that you didn't before. And what I'd argue with markets is it's only making visible and transparent and explicit what's already implicitly happening behind the scenes. You already have financial interests and other kinds of interests, political interests, uh, affecting the priorities of media houses, of knowledge institutions, of educational institutions. All these things are just happening kind of silently and implicitly. And there's these other games that are just happening inevitably. But by giving them a formal structure for those battles to be fought in where the manipulation and vested interests are right for everyone to see. Um, that gives us more power over these and gives them less mysterious power over us. We, but just by making the processes explicit, we can make them a lot tamer and put them in a context where we can deal with them instead of having them exert a silent influence over us. Totally get that. Sweet. Um, I just, I just love the question of how do minds change. I'm wondering, um, have you, have you seen a lot of stories on the minds platform of of people engaging with, um, like, I don't know if the deradicalization program is something that actually takes place within the network or like how, how have you seen conversations, you know, change people on minds through this, you know, free speech approach that other social networks aren't taking? Um, yeah, we definitely have some stories of people that who have like, I know that there's one specific, um, like neo-Nazi type guy who, came in and has just like completely left and is now just into all kinds of healthy creative expression and i mean i i don't um yeah we we've we've done some polls and some surveys and those are going to be included in the paper that we release I, i i think that there's also just like a general tone that when people are in an oppressive environment, they behave differently. So like when you're on a big tech app and you just don't respect it, I think that the discourse can kind of devolve and 
but when you're in a place that you know from the outset like, cares about your expression, I it doesn't mean that people change their mind, but it it I do think that it changes their behavior a little bit in terms of how they express themselves. And so even if they do have some awful views, they're maybe a little bit more respectful. I'm not saying that everybody is respectful. Like that's not a universal truth. But again, it gets back into the the backfire effect. It's like when you're on Twitter, there's just sort of this subtle chilling effect and like force that's working against you where you feel a little bit, you know, you're not, there's clearly just certain things you're not going to post because you don't know if you're going to get shadow banned. Um, and, but you just know that there's this ideology there from the top down of the network. And it, it just makes you behave differently. Like if you're in somebody's house who is an ideologue, like, you know, you're just going to act, you're not going to be yourself. Um, or you're, you're not going to be the best, a be better version of yourself if, if that's possible. So I think that the environment where the discourse is happening and the tone of it and the mission of it matters a lot for like setting the stage for conversations to happen. And it doesn't mean that it won't get polluted sometimes, but, um, yeah, you know, there's, there's a lot, there's, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's other cases of, of, you know, people, the thing is that our numbers are, you know, we've got like 5 million users or something like that, but the pool is not the same sample size as like a big tech app. So, you know, when you have that many people, you can it would be you would get a much more clear picture of what is actually working. You know, I think that because we are getting some of this uh, fallout from big tech, whether it's for privacy or deplatforming or whatever it is, like you know, there probably is a higher relative concentration of some of the you know, what, whether it's like a conspiracy theory or whatever it is, like maybe a little bit more of the fringe. I think that we definitely have like a lot of people who aren't into that stuff and are just like artists who are trying to get the word out about their work. And they feel like that Minds offers them more of an opportunity than big tech because you just kind of get drowned out over there. But you know, I don't know. I, I don't know all the answers. We've definitely had some really cool stories that we've seen. Um, and that's been really reassuring. But that's kind of what the the research project is about long term is like starting to catalog those on a much more systematic and empirical basis. Yeah, that's awesome. I really like your point about how the environment that the conversation takes place in affects the conversation itself. Um, that's a like a really subtle thing that um, I hadn't even heard mentioned before, really. But yeah, like you can you can kind of see, for example, on Reddit how every subreddit kind of has its own little government, and you can definitely see the differences in the ones that work well and have interesting discourse and the ones that don't. It's all kind of based on 
how the moderators set things up and how they enforce rules and guidelines and things like that. There's definitely a better and worse way to host uh, conversations. And so that's, that's really interesting. I got to hop um, in a few minutes, guys. Um, sure. Any, any, any things you want to wrap up with? Yeah. Um, I'll ask, I'll ask one more thing. Uh, given the, you know, Minds' philosophy and the uh, users that attract that have a lot of the same sort of priorities in terms of free speech and transparency and open discourse and stuff like that. Um, in the spirit of the conversation of uh, it's better to let one, let 10 bad ideas go free than to suppress one good one. Are there any like amazingly good ideas or information or knowledge that you've seen crop up on minds that might not have gotten traction anywhere else? Um, yeah, for sure. I think that I would definitely point to the, the art, um, you know, cause art is definitely ideas, but I think that we have this ability for people to amplify their work that just doesn't exist on other social networks. And so, and actually I, I object to a lot of what TikTok does, but I think one of the things that TikTok does well, which is kind of similar to this, is it gives random people this ability to go viral based on like how it's, how it's surfacing people as opposed to, you know, just, celebrities or influencers and whatnot. So I think that I've just discovered so many amazing artists and, and thinkers and, you know, uh, writers and whatnot, but because they had the ability to boost up their content and give it like a chance at gaining traction, I think that there's so much stuff that gets buried on Twitter, for instance, just because there's no tool. I mean, hashtags, but it's it's really hard to gain viral traction unless you have some sort of tool to help push it up. So I think, you know, it gets into kind of the fringe being like either lost or just forgotten about. But yeah, you, you need you need mechanisms that can kind of hunt for those nuggets in the fringe and in like people who have no followers because it's, I mean, sometimes I just wonder and there's no evidence for this, but you know, how many great ideas throughout time just died that like discoveries that we just never knew about. Like there could be some total, I'm, it's almost like if from a, a probability perspective, I would say it's almost impossible that there aren't breakthrough ideas that humanity has come to and lost, which is like exciting and terrifying at the same time. So, and I think that, that that's actually a, a huge argument in the favor 
that I think people would be able to recognize about why the fringe is important and why we have to sort of protect it. Because regardless of if, you know, we're, yeah, and it gets back to the same philosophy, like, you know, you don't want to falsely put one person in prison. It's like, you don't want to falsely, uh, or, or you, you don't, in, you don't want to lose that one good idea and you want to do what you can to find it. So I, that seems in, like an intuitive idea that any normal person could understand because of just the facts of the matter of how the scientific breakthroughs have happened and, or, or not even necessarily a scientific breakthrough, but just like a, a great idea that, that changed how people think about things. It could be, it could be an artistic idea. It doesn't have to be scientific. Yeah. hundred percent. Just that the, the value, I, I couldn't agree more that the, the good ideas are worth so much more than the damage done by bad ideas. That, that is absolutely like the direction to lean in, like maximizing the good stuff and finding it rather than minimizing the bad stuff as if we have the ability to judge that well either way. It's just crazy to me that I, I mean, I feel like this is obvious and it's just sad almost that I feel like we are on the defensive about, <laughs> about this whole concept. And because there's so much evidence just looking at the, the U S and, you know, other author and authoritarian countries and, you know, long-term what has produced the most innovation and like, how free societies uh, have have clearly had an edge, but that's definitely being attacked right now. And so, that, I, I, it's really important for us to to prove this more um, on the on the internet. And you know, I don't necessarily blame a lot of the skeptics because so big social networks have have done such a horrible job of leading this conversation. I mean, they've just buckled every step of the way and they haven't stood up for any of this. Like when have you ever heard a single big tech executive talking about any like this? I think that this is a really kind of unique conversation that we're having, but at the same time, like for, for people who read books, <laughs> this isn't new information. So it's just like, what, what's your take on, on why we don't see any like traditional Silicon Valley leaders talking about this? My first guess would be that it's because centralization is still so endemic that uh, leaders like Jack Dorsey, who I believe uh, would agree with all this, doesn't really have recourse. If governments are pressuring him to suppress misinformation, and the governments have the ability to shut down his business. Like he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to do censorship. Users don't want him to do censorship. It's only because the government has no better idea than to force Jack Dorsey to do censorship that he does censorship. And I uh, wish that I could give yeah. him the benefit that it was just government. Yeah. Okay. Um, that would be maybe what he would say. And there's, I mean, there's undoubtedly truth to that. I mean, I know that countries are you know, throwing fines at him and, you know, you're going to get banned from our country, which, you know, our stance on that is like, okay, ban us. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to take down content that Pakistan tells me to take down. That's ridiculous. That's, I mean, yeah. you think that people, people in Pakistan will figure out, you know, they can use a VPN. 
or they'll, 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 or whatever. They'll like they'll they'll figure it out. I have faith in them. But I I think that it's a little bit deeper in that there are ideological factions within these companies that, you know, and it, it gets into that kind of whole silence is violence or, you know, speech is violence type mentality where there there's powerful people in the companies. Not that I'm not, I don't know what Dorsey agrees or disagrees with. He hasn't even given us the decency of explaining that he may think differently from how his company thinks, which would be nice if we knew that, you know, at least the debate was happening. But I, I think that, you know, you saw, did you see the, um, the thing that just came out, what was the company, but they sent out a notice of like the average donation that was $14 and 92 cents. And they sent out like an apology note after because they said oh we were being insensitive by saying that the average donation was 1492 right around the holidays the thanksgiving holidays because of like you know christopher columbus and the native genocide which is just it's like this is the mentality coming out of you know which is inside big tech companies and it's like okay yeah like obviously there was crazy unethical stuff that happened in, you know, colonialism, but like that can't infect the company to such a degree that like we're paralyzed from, you know, having this conversation and, you know, and, but then it, it impacts the actual content policy of the site because the content policy of Twitter actually has banned people for stating like, you know, like Megan Murphy, who uh, I, I was on her podcast the other day, like she got banned for saying, you know, a man is a woman. And, you know, because it was like dead naming or whatever. And like, you know, obviously no one, it's not even getting into a moral judgment. It's just more so like, yeah, we, we don't want anyone to be mean to each other. Okay. But like, unfortunately, this is the planet Earth and people are mean to each other. And, we have to we have to be able to deal with that and understand like long term speech benefits. So I think yeah. you're totally right. I think you're totally right. I, I definitely spoke too soon. Um, yeah. Um, a- along those lines, uh, I couldn't agree more. That there seems to be unskillfulness happening in terms of deciding what sort of tides are worth swimming against and which ones are worth incorporating into your framework mm. because there are certain human behaviors and, and fallibilities that are just ineradicable and are going to be around and you have to uh, plan for them to be around rather than try to suppress them. I think that's, and that's I think there's all. ways to be sensitive for marginalized communities that big tech needs to figure out that, you know, doesn't like ignore concerns, but that again, like shows the research and evidence that, you know, that actually that approach while totally understandable is, is not the approach that the data shows works, you know? So, you know, 
and it's like the the uh, it's also assuming that marginalized communities like don't want free speech which i know that there there are a number of like public figures emerging you know in the trans community and in in different um other marginalized communities who you know don't want to be told that they think a certain way or or want or don't want free speech just because they're in that community um so there's this sort of conflation that that happens and i think that's extremely offensive to some people in these communities that's why it's so exciting to see people like john mccorder get a column in the new york times recently i don't know if you guys know know who he is no um but he just wrote a book which was like a top it, it made it to the top 10 uh new york times but it's called woke racism and he so he's a black man who, um, you know, it's very provocative title, uh, but he's he's very much like in like the Coleman Hughes camp and sort of this, you know, he's not going to fall into the bucket of just being told that he thinks a certain way based on his physical characteristics. And that's just such a powerful force. And it's very uncommon, but it, it becomes more common when when more people are exposed to it. And I think that, again, I think we're going to get there because, people, you know, like th- that in itself is just like a huge progression. And kudos to the New York Times for giving him a column and, you know, standing behind that perspective because it was controversial. But yeah that's kind of where I think things need to go. And maybe, you know, McCorder is, is, you know, takes it even too far. Um, But, you know, just the title of woke racism is, is, you know, you could see how that would be immediately triggering to some people. But so it's, it's, it's probably maybe a little bit overly intentionally provocative, but you know, what are you going to do? I think that, yeah, gaining a tolerance for provocative content is, is super necessary and, uh, yeah, but cool. I mean, I, yeah, I really appreciate coming on and talking to you guys. This was, this was awesome. And let's keep doing it. hundred percent. Thanks, man. Thanks so much for your time. And yeah, the idea market minds market will go live by December 1st, which is a week from today. Wow. By Wednesday, December 1st. Yeah. All right. So, Hopefully, uh, we'll we get do a sneak that peek. Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. I'm sorry. Can we get a sneak peek? Uh, right now, no, there's not nothing now. Not that now. I can share a screen on it. No, let's, yeah. Let's, uh, by all means, I'll keep you a pro. Yeah, a hit, hit hit me up a few days before, and because uh, I also want to figure out how we can get some integration on our end as well, which would be sort of ideal. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, this was awesome, Mike, James. Thanks, guys. Great pleasure. Thanks so much. We'll talk again later. See ya.